Well, turn your Bible to Job 36 if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, uh, no worries. We'd love to give you one. You can get one right as you leave, right at the information desk. Uh, but, but we'll also have the words behind me on the screen when we get to them, so you'll be able to read along with us uh, anyway. Um, if you're new with us, what we do is we just preach through the Bible, which uh, sadly is a bit of a novel concept anymore, but we just keep working our way, plodding through a book of the Bible. We've been in Job now for a few months um, and Job is a name that, that most people have heard of. Many people know the name Job. In fact, you may hear someone say, uh, well, that man had the patience of Job, or I'm going to need the patience of Job, or something along those lines. But even though a lot of people know about Job and they've heard the name Job, fewer people understand really the whole point of the book of Job. And so that was, that's what we've been spending the last few months trying uh, to make sense of, and the Lord's been gracious to us as we have uh, gone along. Uh, in the middle of the 17th century, so think 1640s, 1650s, there was an English Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, he lived just outside of London, and he was an itinerant preacher who would travel around, and he was really one of the first celebrity preachers. So people would come from all over to hear uh, Jeremiah Burroughs preach. Um, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal preacher. Uh, well, as you probably know, at that point, there were no planes, trains, or automobiles, and so if you're going to get anywhere, you had to ride on a horse. And so Jeremiah would take these trips, sometimes into the remote areas of England, and people would flock to hear him preach. Well, after one particular long day of ministry, Burroughs was headed home, and so he got up on his horse to return home to see his wife. Uh, Jeremiah and his wife were never able to have children, and so he was going home to see his wife, his beloved bride. He just couldn't wait to be reunited with her after a long preaching trip. But just before he got home, just a few miles short of arriving home, his horse uh, hit a rough patch and threw Burroughs off of the, the horseback, and, and he landed right on his back, completely unable to move. So he's just lying there, and he really thought he was going to die. He thought no one's going to come this by this way. He thought he was going to die. Well, uh, by God's grace, a few men happened to pass by. They saw Burroughs. They, they lifted him up, and they took him home to his wife where she would care for him. Now, what his wife noticed right away is that Jeremiah Burroughs, his, his, his back was entirely black. And even though the bubonic plague was raging at this time in England, and one of the symptoms was that the, the, turning, the bl turning of skin to black, uh, his wife thought that this was, was just a bruise. So she said to him, you know, look, it's, you're going to be fine. You just have a, a very bruised back. Not the first time or last time that a wife would uh, undersell the real pain that her husband was going through, I'm sure. Uh, she probably accused him of mansplaining or something. But she said, look, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Well, uh, unfortunately, two weeks later, uh, exactly two weeks later, at the age of 46, Jeremiah Burroughs passed away. Now, he wasn't afraid. During those last few hours, he was not afraid to die. In fact, during those final moments, he would say, oh, the blessed day when I shall go to enjoy an immediate full and eternal communion with Jesus Christ. He would go on to, to encourage, welcome death wherever it comes. Uh, he would go on to say, but do not think of what you must leave in the world, but what you are going to. It is to go to Christ, and that is best of all. Uh, now you may be wondering, what does an illustration about an old English Puritan have to do with uh, the book of Job? Well, Jeremiah Burroughs was a, was a fantastic preacher, also a great author, uh, one book that we still read and still sells out uh, is called, in fact, his most popular book was called 
the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Phenomenal book. It's not light reading, but very, very good stuff. Well, that was his best book, his best known book. His best sermon was called, one of his best was called The Evil of Evils or The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. And it was actually a sermon that was based, and Puritans would do this all the time, based on one verse, Job 36, 21, take care, do not turn to sin, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. It was actually, that, this was actually a whole sermon series based on this, this one single verse. And those words were originally uttered by Elihu, one of Job's friends, to Job in a very accusatory way. What Elihu said to Job was, look, you have chosen, you've chosen to sin rather than embrace the affliction that the Lord has brought on you. When Burroughs preached, uh, and I just happened, I was thinking about this particular sermon, uh, having been reading some, some of the Puritans uh, lately, I was thinking about this particular sermon as we arrived at Job 36 on our own study. And when Burroughs preached on Job 36, he made the point that, that our sin is actually worse than you can ever imagine. He warned against avoiding suffering by, by choosing sin instead. He said, your sin, my sin, is an affront to God. Every single sin, even the sins that we think are not a big deal, even the sins that we, we kind of regard as, quote, respectable sins, they are an, a, a personal affront to God, and they render us guilty of His eternal judgment. He would say, as a preface to that sermon, my principal business in this sermon is to charge men's consciences with the evil of their sin and show, that, show to them how much evil there is in sin. All men are arrayed of afflictions and troubled at affliction. But where's the man or woman, he would say, who fears sin? In other words, we're so worried about getting sick. We're so worried in our day about getting COVID. We're so concerned about something bad happening to us. We're so afraid of dying. Where is the fear of sinning against God, Burroughs would ask. Why are we not filled with dread at the thought of dishonoring our Creator and our Redeemer by our lustful thoughts, our proud ways, our angry outbursts, our judgmental spirit, all the ways that we try to control everything around us. We ought to desire holiness over safety, Burroughs would argue. Now, he arrived at this conviction, at least in part, from, from Job 36. But as we get into it, we're also going to see, praise God, that as evil as sin is, there is complete and total forgiveness of every sin in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no sin so small that it doesn't offend God and render us guilty of eternal punishment, but there's no sin so great that it is beyond the grace of God to forgive. So we're going to look at the second part of Elihu's speech to, to Job, and I want to point out three things, two areas where Elihu had it wrong, he got it wrong, and then I'll offer a corrective, and then we'll also see one area where he got it right. So uh, Job chapter 36, uh, will be in thir 36 and 37, I'm not going to cover every verse, but let's start by reading verses 1 through 4. Here is the word of the Lord. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have, I have yet something to say on God's behalf. 
I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, typically if someone says to you, I'm speaking for God when I say this to you, that's reason to be very suspicious. Uh, Reason, in fact, uh, maybe even reason to run. Uh, When they say that, they're not inviting feedback. They don't want your questions. uh, They don't want you to engage with them. What they're saying is it's, it's sort of viewed as a mic drop moment. What I'm saying here, you need to listen to. And it's often actually a sign of manipulation, to be honest with you. After all, who can argue with someone if they say, what I'm saying to you comes from God himself? Here, Elihu has the audacity to say in verse 2, I'm saying something to you on God's behalf. Now, remember, I've said to you throughout the sermon that Job's friends, so this is the fourth friend, Elihu, they get some things right, they get a lot of things wrong, and Elihu is the most sort of bombastic, the most dramatic of all of his friends. And here, Elihu says that he has perfect knowledge, verse 4. But as we'll see, almost everything he says is the same tired, reused stuff that his friends say. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman writes, after a rather pompous introduction, Elihu launches into his argument, which turns out to be a rehash of the retribution theology that all the characters have been putting forward. God takes care of the innocent and punishes the wicked. So that's what he says. And and not everything that he says is wrong, particularly when he gets to his description of God's sovereign power, Um, but it's when he concludes that if you're suffering, it's because you're sinning, and if things are going well for you, it's necessarily because you're a good person that he really goes off the rails. Now look at verses 5 through 16. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from their iniquity. If they listen and serve Him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword. You can see just what He's doing here. And they die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger, and they do not cry for help when He binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers them, or delivers the afflicted by their affliction, and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. So Elihu continues with his uh, bad theology. And he says in verses 6 through 11, he says, Good people live long lives. Haven't you seen this, Job? Good people live lives of pleasantness. God delivers them from their sickness and affliction. But when they do blow it, he says, When they disobey against God, he catches them in the cords of their affliction. So the implication is, Job, you're clearly a sinner. You're sinning against God. You're hiding your sin from God. Why don't you repent and be restored? In verses 13 and 14, Elihu says that by contrast, the wicked live short lives. They die in their youth, he says, 
their life ends among the prostitutes, which is a poetic way of saying they die by humiliating circumstances. God always brings the wicked to these humiliating deaths. So again, the word to Job is, God's causing you all of this pain and humiliating you because of your sin. And then in verses 15 and 16, Elihu says, suffering is a result of sin. The wicked receive God's immediate judgment. But we have to ask the question as we read this, is all of this actually true? Is Elihu onto something or is he all washed up? Do the wicked live short, humiliating lives as evidence of God's judgment? Some 3,000 plus years later, Billy Joel would say that it's only the good who die young. And yet here Elihu is saying, no, the wicked live short, they live short lives, while the righteous live long lives of safety, prosperity, and pleasantness. Now I ask the question, is that true? Well, experientially, we know it's not true. I know a lot of people who wanted nothing to do with God, hated God even, and yet they live long, prosperous lives, some into their 90s and beyond. There's a reason that God would chastise Job's friends for their counsel, because they just don't have it right. I also know people who serve God, at least by all accounts, for their whole lives, and they live short lives. Think of all the people around the world even now who are suffering because of their allegiance to Christ. Believers in Nigeria who are having their hands cut off, literally, because they dare to raise them in worship to the risen Christ. Christians in Myanmar who are literally starving to death, who are collecting up their last meal, lest they soon die. Christians in North Korea who are being beaten to near death and thrown in prison because of their love for Jesus. Should they conclude that what they're getting is the punishment of God because of their sin? No, they shouldn't. Here's the first thing that Elihu got wrong, and I'll offer a corrective. Elihu said, pain in our lives is God punishing us for sin. But the truth is, pain is an inescapable part of living on a sin-cursed earth, though God does discipline His own. I'll come back to that parenthetical in a moment. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, the world was subjected to God's curse. Everything was affected and infected. Plants, animals, the atmosphere, people, the earth itself, all subjected to God's curse, which means that ever since the world was filled with sickness, death, violence, disease, oppression, and evil of every sort. And so all the things that Pastor Adam so skillfully prayed for, we ask God for mercy. These are all indications of and evidences of the sinfulness of our world. We live in a world filled with all of those things where viruses and diseases and cancers threaten and destroy us, where we're hurt by others and we hurt others ourselves, where seemingly good people go through horrible things and live short lives, where godless people seem to have everything they want and sometimes live very long lives. This is all, these are all the evidences of life on a broken planet. This is why the Apostle Paul would say that all of creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption that will come from above. So when we experience suffering, it's because of the world we live in and the sin that has infected it. So, so why did I include the part about that parenthetical, though God does discipline His own? Well, it is undeniable, I'm going to tell you why, how we apply this, but it is undeniable 
and actually a great comfort to Christians that God disciplines His own. The writer of Hebrews said that God's discipline is one of the ways that we know that we actually belong to God. A few weeks ago, I made the point that uh, if you're a Christian, your good works done sincerely, though, though imperfect, they actually please God. The fact that Christ lives in us means that God delights in our good works. He's pleased with them. He accepts them in Jesus. Well, the same, uh, the, the reverse is also true. Our persistent and unrepentant sin does grieve God, our Father, and He will deal with it out of love. The Apostle Paul says to the, to the Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed with for the day of redemption. And we know that the, the, the triune God has forever existed in, in three persons, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the, the three persons actually mutually indwell one another. So we've got to wade deep here for about 60 seconds. Um, Jesus made it clear in John 14, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It's referred to in, in the Greek as the perichoresis, the mutual indwelling of the triune, uh, the persons of the triune Godhead. They are distinct persons, so the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, and, and, and so on, and yet they do indwell one another. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, the Spirit indwells the Father, and the other way around. The fourth century Augustine famously said, as it relates to the persons of the Trinity, each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Now that doesn't, I'm not really sure how helpful that is, uh, but it does give us a sense of that triune uh, God. And the reason I bring that up is to say, when we sin against God, we grieve the Holy Spirit, which means we also grieve the Father and the Son. Now, when we sin, it doesn't change our standing with God or God's love for us. God's love for us is settled. It is steadfast. It is secure. It is unchanging. It is not contingent upon our behavior. God always loves us fully and completely, and nothing we do could ever change that. But when we do continue in unrepentant sin, it does change the way we experience God's love. Rather than feeling the sweetness of God's fellowship, we actually feel the pangs of guilt and shame. And sometimes God disciplines us by bringing us low, by causing us pain. We see the church at Corinth, they were really abusing in, in, in the, the, the Lord's table and the way they were taking it, ignoring the poor among them. And Paul says, as a result, some of you are sick and some of you have died. So, now, what do we do with all of this? Well, if you are suffering, if you are in pain, or if someone you know is suffering, someone you love is in pain, don't assume that pain is the punishment of God. This is where we should not run to. Don't run there. Pain, as I said last week, seldom equals God's punishment. We've discussed that repeatedly throughout this book, over and over throughout this book. That's not how God works. But, but, and I would like to say this is a really big but, but with junior hires, you can't, it's unadvisable. Uh, but, this is a really big caveat, it's not unwise when we suffer to actually 
examine our own lives to see if there is any unconfessed sin. So what I'm saying to you is don't run to, when you're going through suffering, don't conclude God's punishing me. If somebody else that you love is suffering, don't go to them and say, God's punishing you because you're a terrible, sinful person. Um, but it does, doesn't mean that we shouldn't, on occasion, examine our own hearts. In fact, uh, the great Scottish preacher, uh, Robert McShane, said, we take ten looks at Christ for every one look at ourselves. But that does assume that occasionally we are looking at ourselves. Look at Job, uh, verse 21 of 36. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Now, here's that verse that Jeremiah Burroughs preached a whole sermon series on. Elihu accuses Job of choosing to sin in his pain rather than endure the affliction uh, that has come on him. He will not stop accusing Job of wrongdoing nor insisting that Job is wrong, I mean, that Job has done something wrong for which God is punishing him. You ever been on a, a long road trip with somebody who likes totally different music than you? Um, and they're driving, and so you can't really change uh, the music. It's even worse if they're hooked on one particular, you know, bad album, and you have to listen to that over and over and over again. When Janine and I first got married, uh, we would travel to her parents' house for the Christmas holidays, and then on Christmas Day, we would go from her parents' house to her grandparents' house, who lived about two hours away. And um, as soon as we would get in the car, Janine's parents would put this one album on, uh, A Mannheim Steamroller Christmas. You ever heard of this? This is an abominable uh, album. I mean, it was horrible. For me, uh, you know, I would, I would rather get stuck in an elevator for two hours and listen to that music than a Mannheim steamroller, but it would just go on and on. Um, well, some theologians equate Job's friend's counsel with forcing Job to endure an ear-piercing album on repeat. In fact, one uh, theologian says this, while Elihu's tone has softened, his theological position has not changed. The same broken record is being played, retribution principles greatest hits, Job has to sit and listen to this off-key album. So Elihu says, look, how many times do I have to tell you? You're sinning against God. You're a horrible person. You act like you're great, but you're not. And if you'd only repent of your sin, things would go better. Now, look at verses 22 through 24. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. So Elihu rightly points out that God is awesome in power. He answers to no one. No one can, can put together an argument that will defeat God, but he draws the wrong conclusion by saying uh, that God, that man cannot really know God at all. We can only know about God. Look at verses 25 through 29. All mankind has looked on, uh, on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? So Elihu says that, that, that God's power is so great and his majesty is so supreme that we can't really know God 
except from afar. Now, here's the second thing that Elihu got wrong in, in, in the corrective. Elihu says, God can only be known from a distance. And the truth is, God has made Himself known and personally knowable through His Son. Certainly, God is transcendent. He is beyond our figuring out. In a million ways, God is different than we are. He is different, we can say, existentially, intellectually, morally. You know, in, in every way we can imagine, God is different than we are. And certainly, He is beyond human comprehension. And yet, He has made Himself knowable through His Son. He's made it possible for us to actually know Him personally and to be in a right, restored relationship with the very God who created the universe, again, through the person and work of Jesus. You know, there, there are some things that not everybody wants, you know, not everybody wants to travel internationally. You know, some people want to, some people don't ever want to leave Alabama. Some people want to stay put. Not everybody wants to be famous. Not everybody wants to be rich, I guess. Not everybody wants to, to be a professional athlete. I mean, there are a bunch of things we could say that not everybody necessarily wants, but everybody wants to know God. Now, they may not admit it, but everybody wants to be known by God. And the only way to know God rightly, personally, is through His Son. In fact, Jesus would say to Philip in John 14, He said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, Jesus saying right there in their very presence, uh, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So at the heart of human existence is a God who is so infinitely glorious and incomparably good, so loving and so merciful, so satisfying that knowing Him is in fact the great goal of human existence. Again, not everyone's going to admit to this, of course. Uh, but to know God is what we were created for, and to know God actually means to be known by God, to be adopted into His family, and that only happens by believing on His Son. By repenting of your sins, trusting in Jesus, the one who lived, died on a cross, and rose again for our salvation. When we trust in Jesus, we know God, or better yet, we are known by God in a, in a redeemed, reclaimed, rescued way where God actually delights in us as His children. Now, remember the evil that we started about, talking about the evil of sin, that that great English Puritan uh, was so keen on preaching about. Well, Jesus died to cleanse us from the evil of sin. All of our offenses, great and small, all of them were put on Jesus on the cross where He died for them. The guilt of our sin was taken off of us and put onto Jesus as He suffered in our place. For those who believe, and then Jesus was raised from the dead to show the world that God had accepted Jesus' life and death as a suitable sacrifice for us. So by trusting in Jesus 
And this is something, if you're, if you're not reconciled to God, this is something you can do today, believing on the Christ. By believing in Jesus, we are cleansed from the evil of our sin, every stain of guilt removed, our sinful past purged, obliterated, never to be held against us again. Elihu says that God is not knowable, but he's actually wrong. Not only can we know about God through Jesus, who is the perfect imprint of God, so to speak, but we can know God personally, relationally, through the cross work of His Son. Now look at chapter 37, beginning of verse 1. So Elihu's thinking about this, and he says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that comes from His mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After, after it his voice roars, he, he thunders with a majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. The broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. And then verse 13, this is so important whether for correction or for loss or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So Elihu outlines all these amazing things that God does. And then in verse 13, he says, all of these things God does for his own purpose, sometimes for correction, that he may bring the storm of discipline, so to, so to speak, to his people. Sometimes for his land, in other words, to provide for those that he's made. And sometimes for love, he says, which is a phrase that's really just dripping with covenantal promise. Sometimes to bless his covenant people. God knows why he does what he does, but he doesn't tell us why. And that brings us to our final point. Here's what Elihu gets right. God is sovereign over every aspect of life and creation causing things to happen, quote right from verse 13, for a variety of reasons, which he never feels obligated to explain because he is God. So to say that God is sovereign is to say that he is over and in control of everything that ever takes place. There's nothing that happens apart from his sovereign design, from what we call his decorative will. It's all part of God's sovereign design. But God doesn't feel a burden he doesn't feel obligated to explain to us why he moves the clouds in certain directions, why he tells the snow you can fall this much and no more. He doesn't feel like he has to do that because he's God and we're not. And that brings us to the conclusion of this section and really helps us to make sense of the whole book. Look at verses 23 and 24 of Job 37. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. 
And listen to this last phrase. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Again, this is what I think it's fair to say the whole book is getting at. And that is the wisdom of God. I mentioned to you at the very beginning, you know, we, we read this book, and by God's grace, it does help us understand how to suffer well. It does give us a category for speaking to God, for honest, uh, transparent uh, interaction with God, desperation in our prayers. But the book is not really about us. It's not really even about Job, although certainly Job is the, the central uh, one who's undergoing all this turmoil. This book is actually about the wisdom and the power of God. We, we will likely never know why we go through what we go through as long as we live on this earth. We may never know why in God's providence that we, we go through suffering and loss the way that we do. We will likely never have the answers to the questions that haunt us most. And it's okay to have those questions. But we will likely never know. Why did I lose my mom when she was so young? Why did I have that accident? Why do I have this lingering pain that will never go away? Why do I keep getting sick? Why did I get cancer? Why was my child born with that challenge? Why have my kids abandoned the faith? Why did my business fail? Why, do I, why am I struggling in my relationship? We will never know the answers to those questions. But in the end, we have to say, again, getting to the point of this book, God, you're God. You know what's right. You are loving and merciful, and everything you do is right, and you don't owe me an explanation. And this is really the conclusion of the whole matter. One old-time theologian writes, God is indiscrutable, and man must hide his face before him and not presume to judge him. He is also excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. His moral perfection is on par with his might and majesty. He, and this, is all, this is commentary on verses 23 and 24. He will not answer, i.e., he will not account to men for his doings or condescend to justify himself. In their eyes, his acts cannot but be righteous. So, what do we do? What do you do when you're going through the situation that you're going through now? What do we learn from the book of Job? What do we learn, and we have still two more weeks left, but what do we learn from this chapter? Well, we trust God. We have to, He's God. He is infinitely wise, almighty in power. He tells the clouds, turn and go in a different direction. He tells the rain when and where to fall. He tells the creatures when to go back into their den, Elihu says. We trust God. He knows best. And not only does He know best, His love is beyond our comprehension as well. But we see His love displayed in the cross of Christ, where He sent His Son. He could have left us alone in our dead, hopeless, and sinful situation, in our condition. But out of love and mercy, He sent His Son to buy back, to redeem, to restore unto Himself a people who were lost and hopeless, 
So what do, what do you do? What do we do? We just say, God, I don't understand it. It's not what I would do if I were God. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. It hurts me. But you're God. And I have to trust you. You are God, and I believe that everything you do is right. You are God, and I know you love me because you did not spare your own son so that I could be brought into your family as a child, as a son, as a daughter. Let's pray.